a sports psychologist and an executive coach that currently trains some of the world's best golfers and leaders today. I teach individuals how to utilize their thoughts, understand their complex emotions, and make sense of it all to drive positive, lasting results on and off the golf course. This is the Master's Mindset Podcast with Dr. Matt. Hope you enjoy. Kavika. Dr. Park, how are you? <laughs> What's going on, man? Is that a master's this, hat? This is. This no is my, way. It's my go-to. Wow. <laughs> nice. Can you hear can you hear me all, all good? Yeah, you're you're all good. How about how about on my end? Can you hear me? Yep, it's great. So Kavika, yeah. I, I'm really excited to be able to connect with you again like this. Uh, one, I'm I'm thankful that you woke up so early for this, man, in the yeah. Aloha State. So that's right. No problem. Yeah. It's uh, 7 a.m. in Hawaii, waking up. I'm up no- normally I have a two-year-old, so I'm, I'm waking up around this time. Nice. So, so um, two, two years old already, huh? Yeah, yeah. Just made two in March, so we're uh, we're getting into the terrible twos a little bit, but it's fun. <laughs> Welcome to the club. My, my daughter's four. She's almost okay. turning five, so. Um, right on. Man, so today... Uh, it's a it's a real big treat for me. One to connect with you again. Uh, two, just to talk about life, talk about volleyball. You know, uh, I know there's a documentary coming out. I think it's called Match Point. So, really want to be able to broadcast how cool volleyball actually is, and how how athletic and how vigorous. And and there's a lot of I was watching bo- uh, volleyball just uh, recently, preparing for this to to talk with you. And man, I, I saw so many metaphors, you know, to, to business. I saw a lot of metaphors to other sports and to life and, and the amount of cohesion and team communication and, and uh, grit that needs to happen. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, before we even begin, let, let's just share. Can you share a little bit about your, your background? I know your father's Japanese, your mother is Caucasian. You have a brother, a younger brother, who's also an Olympic athlete. Yeah. I mean, what what was your childhood like? Like, what was growing up in that household like? Yeah, it was uh, it was often competitive. Um, so my uh, my father coached uh, women's volleyball at the University of Hawaii for forty two years, um, wow. and uh, volleyball is is really popular in Hawaii, especially. So volleyball. Um, is is really popular in a lot of the pockets of our country in various regions um especially yeah. men's men's volleyball or boys volleyball um it's very regional so that's part of what this group of players and this generation is trying to do now is really grow the game into other areas so any anyways so I, so obviously in hawaii it's really popular um and then growing up with a with a father that's also a coach yeah. Um, so we were introduced to the, to the sport and to the game from a very, very young age. Yeah. Um, and Eric and I just kind of, kind of grew up around the gym. We were gym rats. Um, it was never forced on us, but it was just kind of, it was just kind of what we did. We we're all always around it, you know? So we grew up in, in the gym and, um, eventually, yeah, we were both, uh, uh, 2016 Olympians and we're aspiring 2020 or now 2021, yeah. 21 Olympians. So, we grew up in, in the gym in Hawaii and then eventually um, we went on and I'm two years older. I went to Stanford yeah. um, and he joined me there two years, two years after me. And we ended up winning a national championship in 2010, yeah. um, which was, uh, which was um, my senior year. Okay. So it was really special. Um, and since then now I've been playing professionally for 10 years 
and uh, with the national team for about 10 years as well. Okay. So I, there, there's a lot there. You, you have a, you're, you have a brother who's two years younger. You have a coach who's like this world famous uh, coach <laughs> for a dad. And um, I mean, I can't imagine what that was like. Was that competitive? Like, did you and your brother fight a lot? And, and did he motivate you in certain ways that, you know, and you motivated him or what, you know, how, how was that childhood rearing like, you know? Ooh, good question. We definitely had a lot of arguments. We, ne- we don't, we don't really physically fight. We, ha- we never really physically fought too much. We wrestled and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, it was highly competitive. I mean, it was everything that we were doing, right? Like Saturday mornings, I remember waking up early and if we had nothing to do that day, we'd go to our ping pong table yeah. and we'd play for like five, six hours straight. And it would start at like best of seven. Yeah. And then one of us would get pissed because we lost a close series and be like, okay, best of nine yeah. and then best of 11. And then we just keep going and going. So I, I think, and then obviously that was kind of always leading the way. And he was always pushing me because he was all is just so talented at everything that he does. Yeah. And he kind of had to rise to my level because we were always playing kind of together. Um, and then that kind of also motivated me to stay ahead. So, yeah. Now, now what did, um, from, from take me back when you were a kid, you and your brother growing up and your dad was your coach. Like what was something that you remember that he did effectively? It might've been hard, but something that helped you and your brother become, yeah. you know, where you are so so he is definitely more of a old school style coach meaning he really wanted to drill into us the fundamentals of the game yeah um and kind of some newer philosophies are more that you have to be and i think there's some research that back up this type of training and teaching as well but that you have to be always like constantly playing and so a lot of new style coaches is like we're going to get the kids in in a in a match or in a scrimmage um whereas we really broke down the skills like from a very early age and we kind of repped them out and, and drilled them out. And that was necessary for us because we're, we're not the biggest or like the most athletic, strongest players. Um, we rely really on um, our skill and our mental game um, yeah. to let us compete at the highest levels. So I was really, and, and that's what he instilled in us. He instilled okay. in us an early um, longing to want to get better yeah. And to want to improve those skills and then also to learn the game um, psychologically at a high level. Okay. So two things that I heard your dad did effectively. One, uh, he constantly pushed you guys to long for the game. So it was almost this constant improvement. It, you're always learning to get better. And then it was this emphasis on the the mundane drills, the the old school, just basic stuff that you repeat over and over and over so you don't get too fancy with your practice. You just do the basic drills and you repeat them and you master them. Uh, I think, I think there's, there's a, a lot in that, you know, if you, if you look at, um, for example, um, with the Warriors or with, uh, Phil Jackson, when, you know, he was coaching the bulls, he always says, make the, the basic things sacred. So like breathing practices that you and I, you know, both teach and learn. And it's, it's almost like you, you make these simple things, sacred and you you just put a lot of emphasis around it you put a lot of attention to it it sounds like that's what your dad did at a a young age yeah and and that's so true um and i love that the word sacred um it's it's volleyball and 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 everything that we do really um and every sport it's so detail oriented you know 
And a lot of times, um, coaches, teachers, we can, we can forget the details, but to have a good fundamental like base for whatever we're doing to master that skill, yeah. you need to have like the basics. It always comes, it always comes back to basics and whatever we're doing. Um, you know, even interpersonal like dynamics, it just comes back to simple communication type of things too. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, that's a really, really good reminder. Um, yeah. I like that a lot. And, and something else that, that kind of reminds me of is, uh, Dr. Ken Revisa. So obviously a lot of, a lot of your followers will, will know him. He was a very, um, I guess, famous and, and well-respected, um, uh, sports psychologist and mental skills trainer, mostly in baseball, but also in athletic departments and other sports. He worked with us a little bit in volleyball. Um, and I've read some of his stuff, but he always talks about the breath um, and yeah. how simple it is, but also how difficult it is to do in the moment under stress. Right. right. And so if we can, if we can learn simply to just breathe under stress, yeah. it's so simple, but so hard to do. If we can learn how to do that, you know, we're, we're already going to improve ourselves and get ready for whatever we're, we're going to have to focus on. Yeah. So, so you and your brother are training now gearing up for the next Olympics um, is what, is what my understanding, right? Correct. So, okay. uh, for men's volleyball, it's a little interesting. We don't have an indoor men's professional league in, um, America. So the majority of the professional players will go over and get a contract in an overseas league, uh, in Europe or Asia, usually maybe Brazil. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'll spend seven, eight months overseas. And then the national team season, the Olympic season typically is in the summers. Okay. Okay. So how does one even go about preparing for an event like the Olympics? Like, you know, for you, it, it, to me, it takes so much patience and perseverance and it's four years out. And, and I know you have uh, matches and games and world championships in between, but you have this, this thing over your head of uh, four years out. I'm training for this monumental event. Like what, what's your process? How do you even begin to, um, structure your, your preparation for that? Great question. Um, an Olympic athlete typically looks at the cycle or his goal or career at that moment. And in like a four year period, a four year cycle. So we call it the quad. So it's quadrennial. And you look at it from that perspective. And I think the coaches do as well, because you want to peak, um, Hey, Maurizio, I'm just checking out the, the chat. How does it feel to play in an Olympics? Yeah. Uh, that's my old teammate, and he's an Olympic gold medalist for Brazil, actually. Thanks nice. for tuning in. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, yeah, so you, you look at it in that four-year span, you always want to peak at the end um, yeah. as a team and as an athlete. And how to do that is just is such a tough question because, like you said, there's so much that goes into it, and there's so much that can happen over time. And for us – you have an overseas team, you have a contract where you're making most of your money overseas. So you want to perform there. You have to perform there. And then you have to come back, you have to do the national team and you have to focus on those goals. Um, and how do you bounce back in between and different cultures and working with different people? Um, all of these things come into play yeah. here. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I think you really have to um, try to focus on one or two things like a day or maybe in a, a short, maybe in a week to get better at. Um, yeah. And that's what I've tried to do. And I've really tried to take this time to break it down to the basics right now, go back to basics. Um, I'm starting to able, I'm able to start touching the ball now 
over the last couple of weeks, finally um, getting into a gym now and again in, in Hawaii. Um, but it really is trying to take like little steps, but that's really, really challenging at times. And I get caught up in, in the, the moment too, where you're just trying to win the next game and trying to stay on your feet a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really hard and you bounce back between those result oriented kind of thinking and, and motivation and then, and then the process oriented as well. But yeah. if you can stay in the process as much as you can, then, um, you know, I think that's the best route, but it is hard. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's not easy to do. Yeah. So the question uh, that was asked was how do you prepare for this monumental event like the Olympics that's four years out. And, and you talked, uh, you pulled on two things that I kind of want to recap. One, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, peaking at the end. And I thought that was really fascinating um, how you have to train so diligently and so patiently persevere, but then you have to prepare to peak at the end right before you go to Rio or, or the Olympics or whatever it might be. And then you also said something, you, you know, you got to chunk it. You got to really focus on the small uh, things or, or this big event. You got to chunk it down to little step-by-step processes. And, and so if I pull on that, um, there's peaking at the end. Uh, there's an analogy, a metaphor that, that we can use in life. So there's something that I call the crucial period to performance. And I see this a lot with not only athletes, but executives as well. So someone who is about to give a, a public presentation, a talk, and they're in the green room, they're getting mic'd up, they're getting makeup. And one of the, uh, the times that they, they get into this process of delivering their speech, they're going over their notes and everything. And then they're all mic'd up, they're makeuped up, and they're about to go on stage live. And they're being introduced. And during this time is what I call the crucial period to performance. This is where it doesn't matter what happened in the past and it doesn't really matter what's happening in the future. How are you going to prepare your mind and, and really protect this time so that you're not distracted, you're not ruminating on negative thoughts. And this crucial period is going to determine how you kind of start off the gate, right? How you, and it's really gearing up to peak at the end. And so it's like a golfer. And I know you play golf, uh, Kavika. So it's, it, you go through your pre-shot routine. So you're looking at your ball, you, you check the wind, uh, you, you warm up, and then you step into your shot. And then you're standing over your ball and you're looking at the hole. And at this time, if all of a sudden you have all these negative thoughts, you're not peaking at the end. You're actually all that pre-shot routine that you geared up for this moment uh, when you're about to pull the trigger. If you're not, your head's not in the right place, then, then all that is useless, right? All that is pointless, so this crucial period right before the actual performance is a very sacred place. And what you said in your preparation of peaking at the end, I think, I think that's really valuable for a lot of us. So, yeah, I, I like, I like that a lot. Um, it's really trying to get yourself into the present moment. I think that's what I'm hearing from you um, yeah. in that, in that period, right before that performance. Um, and I think that's so true. Like, on our national team, we work with a, a lady named Dr. Andrea Becker, who's awesome. Um, yeah. And she's she's worked in various programs, various universities. Now she's in Northern California, actually doing some work for the Kings as well. Yeah. Um, but she talks about how our minds all the, I mean, we're conditioned into going into the past or into the future. So we're either dwelling on the past 
or worrying about the future um, and how much that can affect performance and where that where we're putting our attentional focus. Um, and I just I, lo- I really like like that um, trying to get that in trying to get your mind right into the present at that crucial time. Um, but it also happens throughout the performance as well. Yeah. Um, and, and how you can get there as well. Um, and being able to really um, dial that focus in in difficult moments, too. Yeah. So, Kavika, how do you get in the present? Like, you know, um, the attraction of thinking about the past, the attraction of thinking about the future of results. But what has worked for you and, and for you to get your mind in the present moment? Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of different different philosophies um, where and, and you know this, but there's a. Uh, one philosophy with this is trying to control some of your thoughts and emotions. Um, and then another philosophy is more of the mindfulness side where you just kind of accept them and kind of go with, go with them a little bit. Um, and what, what has worked for me and what I've worked on a lot with um, some of the mentors and, and um, sports psychologists and coaches that I've worked with is, is more of the, the mindfulness side. Um, and so accepting them in the moment um, and then just getting back to my breath. And we talked about that before and just, I think breathing is so important. Yeah. Um, taking a deep breath under stress is hard to do, like I yeah. said earlier, but that's, that's one of the, my big keys. Yeah. Um, and I know that I can always react after that. Um, and that's, that's what's worked for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. So two camps, one is controlling those thoughts and redirecting them. And then two is just letting it be. A mindfulness, just being aware of it, not attaching to it. We call it having a Teflon mind, right? Like a Teflon plan, not sticking to anything, yep. just letting it float by and, and observing. And you are more the, the person that does the mindfulness and taking a breath and just letting the, the thoughts or whatever ruminate, but you're not sticking to any stories. You're just letting it kind of glide by. You're aware of them. And that works for you. Yeah, that works for me. I like that. I haven't heard that Teflon approach or just Teflon mind or whatever. Yeah, Teflon mind. But I I totally understand that right away. So I I think that's cool. Um, That's what's worked for me, Dr. Park. Um, I know that it really also depends on someone's awareness levels too. And it depends on what works for them, what doesn't, and how aware you are of those thoughts and how much you might analyze them. I'm a very analytical person. I'm a very aware person. Um, That's just kind of me. I'm too analytical at times. So, um, So my idea is like, not to try to analyze them or control them. It's just to try to let them be, let the thoughts go um, and, and go, move on from there and yeah. know, know that I can compete um, with some of those thoughts because it's hard to eliminate any type of negative thinking yeah. in any performance. I mean, I think everyone will admit that. So for me, it's just um, kind of accepting them and trying to react and do my best under that stressful time. Yeah. I love that. I love that approach because for me, that works too. I'm more of the mindfulness. I don't necessarily control thoughts. Um, we have automatic thoughts, automatic negative thoughts that appear. And we call them ants, right? Automatic negative thoughts. And they appear kind of like a house. You, you can have all your doors closed, your windows closed. And um, and all of a sudden, you have like a, a cube of, of sugar out on the kitchen counter. And all of a sudden, you got ants coming in. But, it, you know, everything was sealed tight. So you, you could do all this work. And yet you have these ants, these automatic negative thoughts that creep into your brain regardless. So you've got to be able to welcome them, accept them and know that that's going to happen. But we don't have to 
um, attached to those ants or those thoughts, we can redirect our focus, right? We do have control over what we focus on instead. So I'm more the camp of the mindfulness as well. It, it's helped me just welcoming those negative thoughts, not trying to fight them, but almost inviting them to say, you know, I know you're there, but I'm not going to pay attention to you, right? I'm not going to focus on you. I'm going to really focus on uh, what I can control right in front of me instead. So, right. yeah. So one of the things that we talked about, how to prepare for the Olympics, you know, it's a big event, four years out, takes a lot of patience. One of the things you said um, also was chunking it into little baby steps, really focusing on the moment and, and doing the things that you can rather than getting caught up in the result of constantly focusing four years down, the Olympics, gearing up for it. And in the Navy SEALs, it reminds me, in the Navy SEALs, um, in order for you to become a Navy SEALs officer, you got to go through a BUDS training. So BUDS is under uh, basic underwater demolition SEALs training. And it's one of the most grueling weeks of physical, mental exhaustion. And they, you know, they literally, uh, they, they wake you up in the middle of the night where you barely got any sleep. And then you're in your, your boxers and like a wife beater or no shirt on. And you go out into the ocean in, in San Diego where it's, where it's pitch black dark and it's freezing cold and they tell you to go swim and and they ask you or they demand that you stay in the water. Now, 80% of people wash out of BUDS training. Like they, they don't make it through because it's so hard. So they create this mental resiliency program to train them psychologically and how to get better and how to pass this BUDS training. And um, one of the things that they have in, in Navy SEALs is a, a motto, a saying, it's one meal at a time. And basically, they don't think about making it and becoming a Navy SEAL. All they're thinking in that day, so they wake up in the middle of the night, go in the ocean, all they're saying to themselves and to others is just make it a breakfast. That's all they say. Whatever you do, don't quit. Just make it a breakfast. And then you do whatever you can not to quit, So, and then you make it a breakfast. And then after you make that milestone, then you're saying to yourself, okay, just make it a lunch. Just make it a lunch. Don't quit. No matter what, just make it a lunch. So they take it one meal at a time. And it's kind of like what you're doing, what you're saying, not only peaking at the end for the Olympics, but also taking it little by little, chunk by chunk, um, each way you go. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's so easy for all of us to get really big picture yeah. about a lot, a lot of things, you know, and we talk a lot about that. Um, on our national team as well. Uh, but obviously if you get too big picture, you can't remain in the, in the present moment, you yeah. know, you're thinking yeah. so much about the future or the, or the past too. And we know that when you're not in the present moment, you're just not as effective in what, in what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and you just can't, you cannot, I hesitate to use the word you, you cannot reach peak performance, but it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. Um, part of peak performance or a flow state, um, yeah. no matter what your, I guess, thoughts or opinions are on that subject. Um, a big part of that is being in the present moment. And if you look at your great performances or your great moments in your life, usually it's, it's in times where you're just fully dialed into the present and you don't really care about what's going on around you and yeah. things are just kind of coming easily to you. But yeah. if you're not able to get there into the present, that's, that's just rarely, rarely going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so 
trying to keep it smaller picture is for me something that's worked and something that's more effective to get there. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I really, yeah, that resonates a lot with me. And it also reminds me of stories about, um, I think there's been studies or, or various things written about the people that have survived, um, you know, POW camps or, um, yeah, like various different, you know, war situations or war, tough war, um, situations or, or camps. And usually the ones that are surviving are the ones that have that short-term goal where they're just trying to survive that day. Yeah. They find a purpose for that day in t- instead of having a big picture of an expectation that they're going to be able to be released by Christmas or by a certain date. Um, those are the ones that had a harder time surviving. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Kavika, as you look at all the teams that you you've played on that you worked for and you, you know, um, the way that you and I are connected is through John F. Kennedy university and the sports psychology program. And I know you, you learned a lot of team building activities and exercises that you do for, uh, your national team, the Olympic team. And, and what, so if we were to broaden this, because a lot of us who are listening to this may not play for the Olympics or may not play on a sports team and they may be working on a team. Um, yep. and, and it's, and we, we talk in like organizational psychology and executive coaching. We, we talk a lot about team cohesion, like the bond, the, the, um, the connection, the trust, uh, and, and how important that is for you to reach peak performance as a team, right? Um, looking back on your experiences, what has worked for you on the teams that, that you've been on um, as a good kind of team cohesive type of thing that's bonded you guys together? It's a good question. Um, I think of one main one, actually, that has really helped us and I would recommend to a lot of, a lot of people and that's, uh, team debriefs. Um, and so what I mean by that is we typically have a discussion post performance, um, and maybe post practice as well, but usually it's post match. Um, and we win or bad win or lose. Um, we have a very open and honest dialogue and that's something that we've really improved that over the years. And, that dialogue consists of discussing kind of what's happened in the match and where our focus was typically throughout moments of the match, kind of what our feelings were um, and how we were, how we were adapting, where our thought process was, um, how our communication was with our teammates and how we can improve. Was it, where was it positive? Was it negative? Um, so these are all types of questions that we're addressing usually. Um, and that in itself, um, is huge because you get to learn about your teammates. Yeah. You get to learn about one another and what they're going through, um, in those moments. And the reason why it's so important, well, part of this is also developing trust throughout it all throughout and in in your culture, um, in, in those moments, but also, in other moments, um, to lay that foundation, um, so that people can, can be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, so that your teammates can open up, we can open open up to one another. We're not scared of, um, opening up and, and letting someone else into kind of your soul, I guess. Um, and, and also that you're not scared to maybe criticize your teammate or, um, and so that vulnerability factor 
they all they all go hand in hand the trust um these conversations are so deep and so powerful because you want to be able to support one another when you're in those stressful times and that's what and 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 that's what the best teams do they're a because you're not always going to have your a game on the court maybe one guy is maybe one guy isn't you have to be able to open up talk to each other how can i help you how what do you need how can we help how can we work together we can still win yeah. even if we're not at, we're even if we don't have our a game today but the only way you can do that is by communication mm-hmm. so so how do you build that culture though the of open and honesty of that trust because i know the two core values of your coach the olympic coach um was trust and grit i believe right and and but how do you build a culture of, of trust where people and men especially are being vulnerable with each other and feeling safe to share uh, their emotions and, you know, their struggles. Uh, how do you even go about uh, starting to build that? Ooh, I'm trying to think back on when I first came in and coach Bra and, and Bex and everyone came into the program, but they've done such a great job with this. This yeah. is like, they've done such a great job with this. It's a very, um, you know, it sounds all fuzzy, fuzzy, but for us, that's what, that's what makes us tick is it's just, it is yeah. a very open and loving environment. Um, yeah. and something that we enjoy, enjoy doing. Um, but I think having conversations like this, like I said, like you start debriefing, um, performances, you, you can even debrief before too, and talk about kind of how you're feeling and what you're going through. Um, and it's just a kind of, I think it just builds from there. I think you just have to start talking and pointing out, um, pointing out things, what's important to people, um, how you can kind of build communication a little bit, um, stressing interpersonal dynamics and, and communication, um, and just kind of modeling that. Yeah. Um, and, but I think the conversation, it's just starting the conversation. Yeah. Um, it's not always perfect at the start. Like the first debriefs were, you know, people are probably holding back. Um, people aren't, you know, probably aren't as honest or open as, as we would want. Um, but the more and more you do it, the more and more you learn about people, one person kind of steps out of their shell then the next and it kind of builds on itself, you know, and then all of a sudden a few months down the line, a few years down the line, all of a sudden you have a pretty solid culture. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things that um, some threads I want to pull on there. One, it has to come from the top, right? So your coach really believed in it and they valued it. So they emphasized it and they encouraged it. And then you also said another word modeled, you know, and and I I was watching you and uh, Micah Christensen doing the Aloha Fridays and and just talking as openly and honestly about anything really that you know about um, like race about uh, struggles about personal challenges and and I think you being more of a, a veteran now on, on the team and and especially with um, Micah as well is you you guys are modeling uh, that it's okay to talk about emotions. You know, you guys are kind of modeling that it's okay to be vulnerable and actually vulnerability is courageous and, and we commend it, you know, we applaud it. And that's what builds the, the factor of trust and, and the dynamics of this team bond. Um, Google did a study. They did a, a two-year longitudinal study on what makes a high-performing team. And so they, uh, they called it Project Aristotle and they, they studied hundreds of teams within Google on high performance criteria, and they interviewed these executives and team members of, okay, what are some of the ingredients to making a high performing team? And the number one thing that they found 
out of all the high-performing teams uh, was psychological safety. So psychological safety is basically being able to talk out loud and share your thoughts and opinions um, and your beliefs and your ideas without being without the fear of being reprimanded or criticized or condemned. So you got to build that culture where people can share openly and honestly, and people are, uh, you know, rewarded. There's this positive reinforcement for sharing as opposed to shutting people down. Um, and, and we in this sports culture, men are often uh, grown up to believe that if you talk about emotions, you get shut down, you get called a sissy, you get called, you know, uh, some negative bad words, and, and they just kind of shut you down sit for, for sharing or for crying or for emoting. So I love what you, you were talking about with your team, especially at that high, highest performing level in life, being an Olympian, uh, Olympic athlete, and you're talking about the team culture and the dynamics, you're talking about how important psychological safety is. So I think, I think that's something that we all can learn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think something that resonates with me in this discussion also is the idea of um, self-awareness. Yeah. Um, and if you're not open and honest with yourself and you're not, you don't have a, a high level of vulnerability, you're really not as self-aware as you probably should be to reach, to help reach your potential. And if, you're, because the reason why self-awareness is so important is you need to truly understand yourself and what makes you tick and what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are yeah. um, for you to continue to improve um, as a person and as a performer, as a player, it, it it's not just on the, on the sports fields, you know? Um, yeah. And so, and so if you want to get better, like these are all really, really um, important things yeah. in, to, to consider and, and to think about um, and to learn about because uh, they all, they all affect our, our learning too. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to go, you have to dive head first into something and you have to be all in and, and be open to it for you to ha have a valuable learning experience. And I think that's something that I've learned from our national team as well is, um, is that learning aspect and that self-awareness aspect. So Kavika, how do you, what do you think you had to be self-aware of like along your journey of becoming the best you can possibly be as a volleyball player, as an athlete, as a leader, uh, what, what's one thing that really struck you in terms of the self-awareness journey of, of yours? Like, what did you have to be self-aware of, uh, that really, you know, it was, a, it was hard, but you really wrestled with it. Um, I think you have, I was, I had to become more self-aware of how, um, how I was as a player, like physically, first of all, like you, all players have physical, um, strengths and weaknesses and abilities and kind of what they can and cannot do, especially later on in your career. Yeah. Um, everyone has their limitations, you know, and figuring out what works for you and what doesn't work for you is something huge. Like, you just and you have to leverage those strengths and you have to try to just improve those weaknesses a little bit um, from the mental aspect of the game. Um, definitely just what's making me feel really uncomfortable um, and where my focus is at at that time. Mm. Um, and and it's you know, we get into a lot of really stressful environments. Um, and so understanding where my focus was and wasn't in those times and how I can improve them. Uh, that's something that's really helped me, I, I think something I've worked on with, with, um, our sports psychologist was just try, obviously staying in the moment, but how do you do yeah. that 
Um, I like picking a focal point. Yeah. Um, that's something that I've learned that's helped. Obviously, breathing. Breathing and focal point has been really helpful. And then sometimes just try to remind myself to stay in the senses. So mm-hmm. I'll just like tap myself or um, I don't know, just try to feel something mm-hmm. because that kind of brings me back to the moment and saying, okay, I'm here, I'm present, I'm in my senses and I'm not like, I'm not being threatened. My life's not being threatened on the court, like in, a, yeah. in that way. But sometimes you, you do feel like things are just coming down on you and you feel threatened as a, as a person, as a player, and you, you have fears. Um, and so those are things that have helped me with those type of situations, but it yeah. takes time to learn those things. You don't, you don't have that right away. Yeah. Could you just say a little more about focal point? Like even this, it sounds like you're what being in your head and you got out of your head to get to your senses. So that's a focal point right there. But for True. you, how, how do you? Usually I try to pick something, uh, a point or a, a letter or a something in the gym. I'll mm-hmm. find, I'll find it in the gym um, before the match. Usually in the morning, we'll have like a little serve and pass and kind of light workout in the morning before matches. So yeah, I will, I will try to find something that I attach to. And then, and usually it's something up. I like that because looking at something up keeps, keeps me up looking up and not down and like internal, you know, shoulders are back, back and keeping a better posture. So I love that. Um, and, and, and Brian, uh, a fellow JFK, he says he loves that I'm here. I'm present. I'm in my senses. I'm not threatened here on the court. So thanks, Brian Alexander. So he's oh, also, Brian. yeah, also. He's my, the, he's my mentor at, at JFK now. Yeah. No way. <laughs> nice. So um, I, I want to kind of summarize everything that I've heard so far. And I think there were incredible nuggets of wisdom that you shared. Uh, one of the first things we were talking about your dad and his coaching style. And we, we came to the conclusion that what really helped you was keeping the um he's very old school right so it was keeping the the basic fundamental practices and making them sacred so not overlooking breathing like you're an olympic athlete and you're you're talking about how important breathing is breathing is something that we all can do right now from a little kid to a top executive or someone at their you know climbing to to become a collegiate athlete like we can all breathe and you're you're talking at the highest level how important breathing is. So that's available to all of us right now. So keeping those basic things sacred. And then, and then we went to talk about how do you, how do you even prepare for something as big as the Olympics? It's four years out. It takes a lot of grit, determination, a lot of patience. And you you mentioned two things that I want to kind of recap. The first thing was you got to, you got to be patient and then you have to learn how to peak at the end. And that, you know, we were talking about that crucial period of where you need to peak and get your mind, your body all like tight. And so that you can, you can perform and be in that flow present state. And then, and then we talked about chunking, right? Little moments of, of this big event and, and chunking it into day by day events. And your success is determined not on out there on the future, but more, okay. Uh, we, we have an acronym um, called MIT, like most important thing. And I, and I share this with, a lot of uh, my executives who are doing virtual teleworking these days, they're at home, they're parenting, their kids are at, uh, you know, they're out of school. Uh, they're, they're having to run a business or run an organization from their, from their home. And oftentimes they get overwhelmed with all the different tasks that they have to juggle. So one of the advice that I was giving was 
like on a post-it card or, or a little post-it note, um, write your most important thing, the MIT for the day. So if I com complete or achieve this most important thing, uh, then, then that's success for me. I'm not gonna have these huge expectations of what I need to accomplish. I just need to focus on the most important thing and get that accomplished and then go from the next to the next. So you scaffold that. Um, and then, and then we talked about just, you know, mental skills of, of team bonding, team cohesion. You talked a lot about psychological safety and how important that vulnerability is to build trust and, and work, you know, closely in, in a high performing team. So, uh, I mean, you shared, you shared a lot and the focal point, right? The focal yeah. point of, of getting out of your thoughts and using your eyes. So you focus up and out. So your body's lifted and you pick on something very specific externally. Uh, and we, we talk about Nidifer's attentional style, right? There's four different types of focus, external, internal, broad, and, and narrow. So you use different types of focus uh, to help you out of, out of the distractions that you're currently facing, the pressures that are coming in to get, get yourself out of it. And then you, you work with that. But I, I loved how you explained it because you, you make it so simple and you make it really uh, tangible for people to do. So, so I really appreciate this. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been a fun chat. Um, and uh, it's just fun to kind of reflect and review on what I've learned over my career. And, and it is so simple. A lot of these things are really simple, Dr. Bark, but they are so hard to do in the moment. Right, and, right. and it's like, you know, it's, it's, I have definitely good and bad days with it being able to control the focus, you know, and it's something I've done better over time. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's again, like not to sugarcoat anything there, there are times where it's just, it's just hard and it's, it's a big challenge. And that's why high performing anything that you do when you're in high performance, um, yeah. it's just, it's challenging, you know, like you said, to get to that top of the top, um, is really difficult and to stay there is really difficult, um, because you're, put into so many stressful situations um, yeah. and everyone wants to get there as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it's been fun to learn those things. It's really rewarding. Um, I can't wait to, to use some of these things as I transition out of my career in the next, whenever that is year or two. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and it is fun to use them in the moment now as well. Yeah. Um, and then to be, able, to be able to share them. So um, it, I would like, you know, I'd love to hear more about how you apply and, and we'll connect again, but yeah. just how you apply these things to, like you said, to your executive coaching and, and to some people outside of sport um, yeah. and how, and how well they're able to, to use some of these ideas and to adapt to. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so we'll hop off in a second, but Kavika, I just want to invite you. Do, do you have any questions for me? Uh, anything that we discussed, anything that you want to ask me uh, before we, Conclude. I guess, I guess I'll just jump on that point is like, you know, for those of us that don't know kind of some of the work that you do, let's say with business executives, um, and you mentioned that study from Google, which is, which is really fascinating to me is how do you, are these some, are these some conversations that you're using with those type of people as well? What are some of the common, I guess, common themes that, that you're applying, um, outside of the sports world to those people? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so two things that come to mind, one is vulnerability leadership, right? Courageous leadership. And, and that's uh, basically from Brene Brown. So Dr. Brene Brown is a researcher on vulnerability and shame. And she's doing a lot of corporate work, a lot of working with executives. And she says that vulnerability is the most accurate measurement of courage. 
And she was invited to do this talk um, with uh, in front of all these military generals and stuff like that uh, on her research. She had really incredible research on leadership. She has a book out called Dare to Lead, and that's a really good one. And uh, they said, you know, talk about all the leadership stuff, but just don't talk about vulnerability, uh, Dr. Brown, please. These men won't. They will chew you up if you do. And she says, I can't do that. So the first thing she did when she go out on stage, she, she starts talking about vulnerability. And she says, I, I, I want to challenge everyone here in the audience. Tell me of a courageous act that you've done or that you've seen someone do that was courageous, that didn't involve risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. Risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. Those are the three things that define vulnerability. And there was a four-star general that stood up from the audience and, and raised his hand and says, Dr. Brown, I can tell you for a fact that there is no courage without vulnerability. And so a lot of leaders, they feel that they cannot share um, discomfort or challenges that they're facing, or they can't, they feel like they have to have it all put together because they're the leader. Everybody's watching them, but that's not it. You know, um, courage is contagious. Vulnerability is contagious. Vulnerability, leadership, courageous leadership. And number two is self-compassion. We got to learn to embrace self-compassion. And I think that's the key. So those are the like two that. things that um, I work a lot with in terms of executive coaching. And it's counterintuitive. When you think of executive coaching, you think of like power and, you know, like authority, but it's kind of the opposite. It's more soft. It's gentle. It's very therapeutic uh, in that sense. What about, okay, my last question. What about, um, so I understand what you're saying with, with that vulnerability for an executive for themselves too. How are they with encouraging that amongst their employees and people under them to build that, I guess, that trust yeah. and to allow them to feel free and allow them to kind of be able to be, feel vulnerable and, and open and giving them and showing them value too. Cause that, that comes hand in hand. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, confidence, part of confidence is being, being felt that you're heard and, and being felt that you're valued. Yeah. Um, and so how do you impart that to them as well? And how do they typically, are they open to that? Yeah. So, so how does a leader at the top of his or her organization, how do they uh, teach that to their employees or down in where people are doing it? So exactly. um, things are more caught than they're taught. And you know, this as a father of a two-year-old. Um, so for example, if, if, if I were to do something, so do something for me, uh, Kavika, go, go ahead and give me an okay sign. Okay, just like that. And put it on your chin. Okay, what did I say? I said put it on your chin. But a <laughs> lot of people put it on their cheek, right? Things are more caught than, than taught. So in life, 55% of all communication is nonverbal. We pick up things nonverbally more than uh, if I were to ever teach you or say anything to you. Uh, my daughter starts to scold my dog exactly the way that I scold my dog. And I've never taught her this. And I said, you know, how did you learn how to do this? And I was thinking in my head, things are more caught than they're taught. So, you know, people pick up things based on what they see people do rather than what they're told to do. So as a leader, it's really important for us to be able to um, model those behaviors first. So it starts with you. Okay.
Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So Kavika, I know you have a documentary or the U.S. I think it's U.S. men's volleyball or or it's called Match. Yeah. So Match Point is coming out with a a documentary. um, And it's basically about kind of um, men's volleyball, boys volleyball and the growth of it over the last few years and kind of where we see our sport headed. Um, And so uh, it's really exciting. Um, I think it's coming out um, any day now. Uh, they had to, I think they delayed it a little bit because of the current um, events right now going on and um, the importance of those events. So, um, yeah, just love for people to check it out. Follow um, First Point, Match Point on, on social media and, and just get involved with um, and watch some some men's volleyball. And it's really exciting, like high level, like intense. In, it's an intense sport that I think not too many people throughout our country um, know about or have watched. So. It's something that we're trying to trying to spread the the word, grow the game, and and just get 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 our sport more exposure because it is really fun. Oh man, um, yeah, it, so, it's it's thrilling. It's it's, I mean these it's these, fun. yeah, you guys are throwing yourself out there for yeah, the sake just, of the team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, there's just there's a great team aspect about it. That's why that's what I love about it. Yeah, um, and. It's funny because when we go overseas to play, it's so popular. It's like yeah. second or third most popular sport in, in the world um, in some places. And so um, we're just trying to, trying to grow it, trying to, trying to get it step by step a little bit bigger so that boys yeah. can be more involved and we get a higher participation rate. So, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for uh, bringing that up, too. Uh, absolutely. Now, thank you, Kavika. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate all that you do. Uh, and how you inspire young minds and, and people who are, you know, wanting to be an Olympic athlete one day that it is possible. You know, it, it isn't, it isn't a far fetched, it takes a lot of work. It's hard. Of, of course. I mean, that's the peak of anyone's career or top performance. You think of an Olympic athlete, um, but it's, it's, it's doable, right? It's, it's it doable. Is, it is. So. It is. Step by step. So step by thanks, step. For, having, thanks yeah. for having me, Dr. Park. I, yeah. I appreciate it. It's, it's fun catching up with you. Yeah, same here. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Mastering Mindset Podcast with Dr. Matt. Mastering Mindset is a training platform where we continue to train individuals and teams on how to master their thoughts, their emotions, and their behaviors in life so that they can ultimately master their performance. Stay tuned for more.